Romans chapter 12, uh, as Jeff mentioned earlier, we're starting a new series now called The Body. So we've moved from Romans chapter 8 to Romans chapter 12. As we get ready to start a new church year, let's discover what it is we're to be about as the body of Christ. Paul writes first to the individual in verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, we do thank you that you have a perfect will for our lives. Lord, I pray that we'll gain a better understanding through your word this morning, how we can get in on it. Lord, none of us want to miss out on all that you have in store for us. So I pray that today you'll help us each one, even individually, examine ourselves before your presence so that we might not miss out on what you have in store for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When I... I was in Haiti about 13 years ago. We had the privilege. I know um, Harley was with me, and I think Walton went up with us. There were a few others on that team. We had the privilege to go and watch them make some bricks uh, with a, a brick-making machine that they had that they used there in Haiti. And they explained how there was a right way and there was a wrong way to make those bricks and they were teaching the Haitians how to make these bricks and use them in construction. Those of you who have been to the, the country of Haiti before, driven around, you know, and especially those of you who heard what happened after the earthquake hit the island, that there was a lot of things that fell apart in that nation. There was a lot of destruction as a result of poor construction. And that's what happens in our lives sometimes. There's a lot of destruction, destruction, because there is a lot of poor construction. And... and Many times it's not just the way that things were built, it's the materials that they had access to, it's the resources they had to build with. I might illustrate that same principle just in, in a little bit different way. How many of you are excited about going back to school this week? Raise your hand. All right, a few of you are excited. Now, how many teachers do we have here this morning? We have any teachers going back or just going back? All right, let's see. We have at least three, four. We have teachers going back to school this week. And um, there, some are excited and some aren't so much excited. And, and here's something that I think we do to our teachers. Sometimes it's a little bit unfair. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I think in whatever our vocation is, there needs to be some, some type of evaluation that goes on. But when it comes to evaluating teachers, sometimes we don't take into account the materials, the resources students that they have to work with. Am I right? The teachers are like, amen. You don't realize, you don't understand what it is that I have to work with. Because we're, we live in a nation, we live in a, a, a society that is results-oriented. Sometimes even those in the ministry are, are kind of evaluated under the same eyes as, what are the results? What are you accomplishing? And sometimes preachers and teachers depending on where they are sent to work and the people they're sent to work with say, but you don't understand the students I've been given to work with or you don't understand the limited resources I have to work with. And so when it comes to this subject of the building up of the church, 
I think we need to start, and, and, and I call this first things first. We need to get first things first when it comes to the body of Christ. First of all, we need to take personal responsibility. There's, a, there's certainly a place for the family. There's a place for the church. There's a place for the church universal. But we all need to take personal responsibility and ask the question, am I the brick? Am I the resource that I need to be so that I can be part of a larger building that is built up for the glory of God? The reason I believe we have so many churches that fail to recognize Christ and his word as sovereign and, and seeing the church grow together in maturity is that so many churches today are guided by individuals, many that are even unregenerate, having never been born again, that also fail to be the resource, that solid brick, that student of God's word that they need to be, and they have a personal responsibility of God to be that resource for the building of the church. See, the church is not this building that we're in. It's not the building. It's not the kids' center. It's not the nursery. The church is not facilities. Many people have made it that in the world today. But the church is not the facilities, uh, the location that we meet. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 tell us that we are individually living stones that are being built up together to form the house of God. So the church building is me. The church building is you. The church building is when God pulls all of us together as what Peter calls living stones. I wonder where Peter got that from. Remember, Jesus gave him the name Peter because it means rock. And he says, on this rock, the statement that, Jesus, uh, that Peter made that Jesus was the son of the living God, he says, on this rock I will build my church. In other words, Peter, you're going to be a stone. You're going to be a living stone. And Peter was saying, and the rest of you are too, that if you've come to faith in Christ, you're a living stone. And so the church building, not this building, not brick and mortar, but you and me, that God is building up are those of us who are living stones coming together. So here's what I think Paul is doing in verses 1 and 2 before he gets into describing what the church is to be all about corporately. He's saying, make sure you're the right stone. Make sure you're the solid resource that contributes to the construction and not the destruction of that which God is building up. And so let's get first things first. Let's make sure we're the resource that adds to the building up and not the tearing down of the church. There are all kinds of names for church that emphasizes the importance of the commitment of those of us who make up the church in the Scripture. The church is called the Bride of Christ. I did a wedding yesterday. Don't you want to know that a bride is committed to the marriage before you pronounce a couple husband and wife? And yesterday we saw a young man and young lady who were committed to this marriage. And I wanted to know that Tina was committed to the marriage before we ever went to the altar. So in the same way as the bride of Christ, we want to know that we have nailed down our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word church itself, it's the Greek word ekklesia, means those who are called out. As a matter of fact, this is kind of cool. Those of you who went to Camp Kaleo, the word ekklesia has as its root, root word 
kaleo, which means to call out, or I call out, um, or to call, and then the prefix ek, out of. So we are the ones who have been called out of this world, yet to be in the world and not of the world. And so ekklesia is the word that's most often used for church in the Greek New Testament. The church is called the flock of God. It's also called the household of God to remind us that it's not the brick and mortar or the metal or the steel. It's you and me that make up the church building. And we're called the people of God. And then there are times when churches are referred to as a locality, the local church, the body of Christ in a particular place, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea, or the church at Philippi, or the church at Colossae. And so we are the local church, and 90% of the time that the Bible talks about the church, it's talking about a local body of believer, which t- believers, which tells us that we're all not only to be a, a, a stone in the church universal, uh, a part of that body of all of those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but we're all to be an active part of a local body of believers, a stone in that building. Now, you say, well, what's your point? Here's my point. We can't give ourselves to the body of Christ until first we give our bodies individually to Christ himself. Being called out, the ecclesia, means we are called to Christ. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. And until we've made that decision, we're not really part of the church, even though our name may be on a church roll, we are not part of the church until we have first taken up our cross to follow Christ. So if a local church becomes an organization of people, who have not died to self, it will merely be a gathering. It will merely be a social club. And I don't know about you, but I believe our nation is full of social clubs called churches that are making no eternal significance in the lives of individuals, communities, or this nation or world. God forbid that Trinity would ever be a social club. It's not independent, and we're not independent of various families in the family of God, but we are made up of those who have given their heart individually as a decision, as a personal responsibility to Jesus Christ. And then they become part of that body. When, when Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, 20, to him who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think, that's after we have committed our lives to the work of Christ in us individually putting ourselves together to be a part of a church. So Paul deals with first things first. And by the way, I'm fired up about what God's doing in the life of of the folks here at Trinity. And I thought last Sunday night was a wonderful, wonderful celebration of that. As we came together in fellowship, we did baptisms, uh, we got to know some of the newer families in the church, and I'm, I'm excited about what God is doing here at Trinity. But I believe, as I've always said, the best is yet to come. As we approach a new church year, uh, August to September, we transition into a new church year, fiscal year, a year of different people serving in different places. I'm more excited than ever about what God has in store for the Trinity family, 
But we're just part of a grander scheme of what God is doing around this world, and we get to be part of it. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we make sure we're the brick, we're the resource, so that God, as God's building up this household of faith, as God is, is building up the household of God, how do we make sure we're that living stone that we should be that adds to the construction and not the destruction or deterioration of the church? First of all, I think what he's saying here in verse 1 is that you and I must sacrifice ourselves for God's purposes. For us to really add to what he's doing in the church, we must sacrifice ourselves. It can't be about me. It can't be about you. It can't be about self first. We've got to sacrifice ourselves for God's purposes. So the first thing he says is, I urge you, therefore... Remember what Jeff said, we, we, we know what the word therefore is therefore now. He's laid out the foundation of the gospel. We've studied Romans chapter 8. We know who we are in Christ because of what Christ himself has done for me and you. And in response to that, Paul's saying, I urge you or I beseech you, I beg you, the word there. Let's go back to that word kaleo again. Here it's parakaleo, which the word para means I call out coming along beside you. He's calling out to us, he's urging, he's pleading, but he's saying, I'm coming along beside you. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is called the paraclete, the one who comes along beside us to urge us in this process. You know, we often say to folks, and we say this, and I've said this all the time, I've even counseled others to practice saying this. We say, listen, I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I can't be the Holy Spirit in your life. And you can't be the Holy Spirit in my life. We have to let the Holy Spirit be the paraclete, the one who comes along the side. But in a, in a very real, real way, Paul is saying, I'm being used right here by the Holy Spirit to stir things up a little bit. I'm urging you. I'm pleading you. One of the problems we have in biblical interpretation is you can't always see the emotion in the text. But in a world and in a time where everything that they received almost was in print, they couldn't listen to Charles Stanley or Adrian Rogers on the radio, they had to receive much of the material they got in print. And sometimes, of course, when they gathered together, they heard the word of God read. But the reader would have to see what they called emotional terms in the text. Now, we're kind of moving back to that day, aren't we? Nobody gives you a call anymore. They, they send you a text message. And so you, you get a text from somebody, and sometimes we get a little bit rattled by that because we don't hear the laughter in the text. We, we don't hear, unless somebody puts all those little emoticons in there, we don't, we don't hear how they are saying it. And so we'll, we'll call one another up and uh, say, hey, are you mad at me? No, why? Oh, I was being sarcastic. Well, I couldn't tell that in your text message. Well, often we don't pick up emotion in Scripture, but here, Paul is using emotional terms, that, that I'm coming along beside of you. See, the Holy Spirit uses Paul to come along beside of them, to urge them, to, to plead with them. He says, I'm crying out to you. And, and this come along beside, those of you who are into weightlifting and that sort of thing, you can understand this a little bit by the, the importance of a spotter when you're doing bench press. The spotter's there for a couple of reasons. He's, he's supposed to catch the weight before it crushes your chest if your arms give out, right? So you want to know that the spotter's got a little bit of strength. Some of you have had a failed spotter before, right? You just weren't paying attention. Well, well he, he's coming along beside us. He's, he's yelling out. But also, a good spotter doesn't only help, help you get the weight up and make sure it doesn't crush you. A good spotter is kind of cheering you on. Come on, you can do it. Get it up. You can lift this up. 
Push that weight. You can, come on, you can do this. And so Paul is saying to us, you can do this. I'm urging you. I'm coming along beside you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. I know you can do it. I'm going to help you do it. We're going to get there. You're going to give your body. You're going to present your body as a living sacrifice. And Paul wasn't preaching anything he hadn't already lived. Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. Remember we saw in Romans 8, we still have this, this body of flesh that we deal with. So he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. So he says, I'm pleading with you to give your bodies, to present almost as an act of worship, because of God's mercy toward us, he gave himself on the cross for us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, the Jewish mind would have perhaps pictured the whole burnt offering that was to be totally consumed, whether it was a bull or a lamb, the whole burnt offering was, was a sign of total devotion, total consecration, to be totally consumed, holy, perfect, pleasing unto God. And so we are to take up the cross and die to self on a daily basis as an act of devotion, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. When I choose to live a consecrated life unto Christ and Christ alone, then I am a living sacrifice for him. It's not vain ritual like the Old Testament sacrifices had become where they just kind of went through the emotion, well, I've sinned and I'm going to offer two turtle doves. I I sinned and I'm going to offer a lamb. Because of my sin, I'm going to do this, I'm going to offer that. When it came to the dead sacrifices, those sacrifices that were to be killed as a result of sin then Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all dead sacrifices. He gave his life once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So he ended the sacrificial system by being the ultimate fulfillment of that. What we're called to do now is not get caught up in vain ritual, but to be a living sacrifice, to die to sin and self, and live for Christ. It's it's a life of being obedient to Christ rather than being obedient to my fleshly desires. That's the living sacrifice. In Psalm chapter 51 and verse 17, after David had sinned with Bathsheba, he starts talking about how, yes, we can go through the sacrifice of of offering bulls and and goats and that sort of thing for the sin, so, so I can understand the seriousness of it. But he says, Ultimately, God, you don't desire the blood of bulls and goats. The sacrifices of God, David says, are broken and a contrite heart. Repentance and obedience. That's what a living sacrifice is to be. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22 and 23, remember Saul, the first king in Israel, was rebuked. And he lost his right to the throne. Because after being told to go in and slay the Amalekites and, and, and to not leave anything living, you know, he's, Samuel the prophet shows up and says, well, what's that? I hear some goats in the background. Oh, no, no, we kept, we kept some of the best animals. Oh, but we kept them for sacrifice. We're going to use them to worship God. And Samuel the prophet said to Saul, you don't understand. 
to obey is better than sacrifice. You're being disobedient. See, see a living sacrifice says it's not that I'm going to keep on sinning that grace may abound and then I'll say I'm sorry. I'll come up with, with something to offer God and, and by my offering to God I'm saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to do it again, by the way, but I'm sorry. I just want you to know that I'm sorry. Samuel said it doesn't work that way. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. Saying, well, that doesn't really apply to us today. We see that all the time. Parents, how many times have you heard your kids say, I'm sorry? And you want to say, listen, I don't want to hear I'm sorry. I want to see a change. Oh, I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Listen, I'm glad you are telling me with words that you're sorry. But let me see obedience next time. Why don't we feel that way, parents? It's because it's the same way God feels about us. Oh, but God, I'm sorry. I blew that. And God is saying, to obey is better than sacrifice. Be a living sacrifice. Say no to the flesh before you are involved in that kind of behavior and live your life as a living sacrifice for me. Deny the things of this world and live for me. He says, this is your reasonable, or in some translations, your spiritual act of worship. When you choose to die to self in order to give yourself to God's purposes, saying, God, what you desire of me is more important than what my flesh desires for me, and so I die to myself, I die to my flesh, and I live to you. When your hobby, your favorite hobby is sacrifice to spend time with your spouse or kids. That's living sacrifice. When a gift is given to missions instead of going out to a nice restaurant with that money or using it for a video gaming system. When you choose to reject maybe even sleep or time watching the tube and exchange that for prayer and Bible study. That's being a living sacrifice. When a beautiful day like today is spent in worship and not on the lake, That's a living sacrifice. When we deny the lust of the flesh in order to live pure for God and for our future spouse, young people, that is being a living sacrifice. And he's saying, give yourselves, give your life in obedience to me as a living sacrifice. Die to self and live to me. That's what God is asking for. And if we're going to be a part of the body of Christ that adds to the construction and not the destruction of the body, then individually, on our own, we need to say, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, know my anxieties, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me be who I'm to be. So that when we come together as the body of Christ, Stephen Covey talks about something, I've shared this with you before, he talks about something in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People called interdependence. Interdependence is where two or more coming together can, can do multiple times more than the sum of all of their abilities apart. Interdependence. Now, I like to correct his theology just a little bit, a little bit of humanistic, a little bit of, I think, Mormon influence is involved in, in the seven habits. And so I like to correct his theology just a little bit because he says we must move from dependence, I'm sorry, he says we must move from independence to dependence in order to become interdependent. And what he's saying by that is, we, we can't be like babes all the time needing somebody to do everything for us. 
we've got to become independent, able to stand on our own two feet, so that we can then come together with others and become interdependent. And again, I say I like to change this theology a little bit. We need to move from dependence to Christ's dependence to where we are complete in Christ, giving ourselves... So, so we used to sing the song, I've decided to follow Jesus. There was a line, the world behind me, the cross before me. Though none go with me, I still will follow. If I'm the only human being on the face of the earth, I'm committed that I am going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to that place where we're totally Christ-dependent, where we're totally sufficient in Christ and Christ alone, then we're able to become interdependent and become an effective and valuable part of the body of Christ, and we work together. That even makes marriages stronger. Listen, my marriage would not be stronger if Tina and I said, we can't live without each other. Saying, man, you don't believe you can't live without? Probably couldn't. But we both had to come to a place where we said, look, God is my source. God is my strength. We can't live without the Lord Jesus Christ. But with Jesus Christ in our lives, we can do more together than we ever could do apart. But if we're not complete in Christ first, we would drive one another crazy, separate from Christ. But in Christ, we become a better team for Christ than we ever could be apart. That's interdependence. That's why he says, first things first, you individually give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice. Then you will become ready to contribute, to add to the construction of the body rather than the destruction of the body because you're no longer weak material your weakness has become a strength in Christ. Secondly, you and I must saturate ourselves with God's principles. This is part of body life now. You and I must saturate ourselves with God's principles. There was a time where it seemed the church struggled, kind of with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, but today the church in the West almost completely embraces worldly principles for living. So in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Some translations say, don't be pressed into the world's mold. I like what the Amplified Bible says here. It says, do not be fashioned after and adapted to this world's external superficial customs. But, and there's two parts to this, but be transformed How? By the renewing of your mind. So don't be conformed to this world, but understand that there is a process of transformation taking place in your life. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 touches on this when uh, David says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the path of the sinner, sit in the seat of the mocker. For those of you who heard Josh Paskey at camp this year, that's what he called unwise associations not being conformed to the patterns of this world. But Psalm 1 and verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the principles and the precepts of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we're looking at two parts of this saturating ourselves with God's principles. That which has to be flushed out of us, the pattern of this world, and that which God wants to put into us, his principles and his standards for life. James chapter 1 refers to the Word of God as as being vital in that when he says, Therefore let us lay aside all wickedness, all overflow of filthiness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, the Word of God, which is able to save your souls. 
what is, what is James talking about? He's writing to believers who are scattered around the world, who have the world's influence on their life. These are people who are already saved by grace through faith in Christ. But he's saying now, you've got to be saturated with the Word of God and let it flush out the impurities in your life so that you are guided by biblical principles, not worldly principles. And it will save you, it will rescue you from heartache and heartbreak in this world. So we get caught up in doing things the world's way. And, and, you know, this is one of the smartest generations that's ever lived. And we think we would recognize anything that would hurt us, but we often make the mistake. Chuck Swindoll talks about a, a fly that thought it was pretty smart because he recognized a spider's web as a spider was building it. And the spider had, had built this beautiful web, and, and the fly flies by the web. And he says, oh, I'm up to your tricks, Mr. Spider. I see your web, but I know that if I fly into that web, I'll get, I'll get trapped. And because the, fly, the, the, the spider had moved any other insects that were caught up in the web, the fly didn't see any other insects, didn't see any other flies. And he said, listen, I know not to go anywhere alone. And I'm not going to be fooled by your tactics. As a matter of fact, right over there, I see all my friends hanging out and dancing on that pretty black brown paper. And so I am not flying into your web. I'm flying to that paper. And, of course, you know what the paper was. It was fly paper. And the fly went to join the party. He went to join the crowd and do what everybody else was doing, and it led to his death. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And so when we get to that place where we say, well, let's just do what the world's doing. Come on, pastor, you can't preach those principles. You can't preach those precepts anymore. Don't you understand? The world says this is okay now. The world says we can do this now. That's old-fashioned. We're just going to join the crowd, and, and we get on the broad road that leads to destruction. Where do we find worldly influence today? Unwise associations, the company we keep, the music we listen to, television shows that we watch, social networking that we're involved in. Well, Pastor, are you telling me I've got to get rid of my Facebook page? If it causes you to stumble, yes. Same th- I say the same thing about social media that pastors perhaps said about the television set for years. There's a lot of wonderful things that have come out of it. Last night, I watched another excerpt from Billy Graham, Classic Crusades. It's kind of my Saturday night thing. Billy Graham said, television said, we can get in the home of everybody in the world one day. That's awesome, wonderful. TV's a good thing, right? The devil comes along and says, I can get in the home of everybody in the world. See, it's, all, all has, it's, it's an inanimate object. It all depends on how you use it. Social media is the same way. I tell folks that the internet and Facebook and all of that's like New York City. Parents, would you let your kids go to New York City? You would say, yeah, someday, but not alone. Not without supervision. Not without accountability. There are places we just should not go without supervision and accountability in our lives. And so if you're going to use it, have supervision, have accountability. If you want to let your kids use it, and by the way, don't let them lie about their age to get on it. The end justifies the means again, it's all right. Don't let them lie about their age to get on it, but if they are going to be involved in it, then you be their chaperone. You provide protection in their life so that they're not conformed to the patterns 
of this world. That means you provide the same thing in your own life. We all need a Philippians 4.8 filter. You might want to write that in the margin of your Bible. Philippians 4.8. We all need a Philippians 4.8 filter on our television set. We need a Philippians 4.8 filter on our computers. Where can I get one of those? Listen, Philippians 4.8 says, Whatsoever things are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, morally excellent, and worthy of praise, think on these things. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Or as it's been said before, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so transformation comes about by the renewing of your mind, and we need that Philippians 4.8 filter on everything that bombards our mind today. And then this transformation works its way out. Richard Foster, the author of Celebration of Discipline, as he writes about the various spiritual disciplines, he gives us disciplines that work their way in and out. Some of you may want to write down these. These are known as the Christian disciplines. He says, inwardly, they are prayer and meditation, fasting and study. Or we're praying and meditating on the principles of God, the commandments of God, the, the scriptures that we've memorized. We're fasting and we're involved in study. Those are the inward disciplines. The outward disciplines are simplicity, solitude, service, where we're finding our place in the kingdom of God, where we know that we have to get along with God, where we have to simplify our lives. And then the corporate disciplines are worship, confession, fellowship, and celebration. Those things that we are called to do together with the body of Christ that contribute to this transformation process. So once we've committed to follow Christ and Christ alone, even if we're the only one in the world, then God says, but now you're part of the body that's going to help you do that even better. And so we have worship and confession and fellowship and celebration. That's transformation. That's that's saying not only now am I going to sacrifice myself for God's purpose, I'm going to be saturated with his principles. Now the brick's getting stronger that God's going to use in the building of his kingdom and so finally, you and I must surrender ourselves to God's plans. We must surrender ourselves to God's plans. Do we really believe that there is a creator God and that he has a plan for our lives? Do, do you really believe that? There is a God. He is creator. He is redeemer. He has saved me. And he reveals himself ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his word. And I can get in on a plan that he has for my life. Here's what he says. Go back to verse 2. If we're not being conformed to this world, but we're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, we will be able to prove, test, demonstrate what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. As a result of all this, I'm surrendering to God's will. I'm getting in on God's plan for my life. He has a plan, and it is good. It is acceptable. It's pleasing before Almighty God, and it is perfect. God has a perfect plan for your life and for my life. Whatever this world offers just doesn't compare to what God has in store for those who love him. God is our redeemer. He's always up to something, and we want to get in on that plan. Sometimes I write on some of the, the birthday cards that I sign here, just a, a reminder of that when I put Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, because I, I want you to know that God knows the plans he has for you. Plans 
to prosper you. Prosperity does not always mean health and wealth. Prosperity always means getting in on God's best for your life. But I really need to add verse 13 to that, which says, Seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. We've got to be desperately seeking after God so that we might get in on all that he has for us. What happens is when we begin to give our lives as a living sacrifice, saying, I sacrifice myself because of God's purposes. His plans are better. And when I, get, when I sacrifice myself and I begin to be transformed, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, it's like driving down the road. Anybody ever had a, a long ride that started early in the morning on a foggy morning? And, and maybe you're going down a road that you haven't traveled often or maybe never before. And don't you hate those days and you're wondering, man, I can't see 30 feet in front of my eyes. I've got to slow down. What if a deer runs out in front of me, which is likely to happen if you're in Madison County, Georgia, or nowadays armadillos, right? What if a deer or armadillo, something runs out in front of my car? What if, what if I hit something? What if I come back on, uh, you know, run up on somebody too fast because I can't see their taillights in the fog or maybe they don't have their lights on? But then as the day goes the sun begins to come up, the fog begins to lift, and now you can see clearly the path before you. That is exactly what happens when you begin to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a fog that this world brings upon us. There's a fog that worldliness and going through this world just kind of brings. But when we are transformed, When our mind's being cleared, we're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, and we're laying aside all of that worldliness, and we're giving ourselves sacrificially for the purposes of God, and and we're being renewed day by day by day, what happens is the fog begins to lift. Some of you gathered here this morning know that you want to know God's will for your life, you want to know God's plan for your life, but you're like, but it's a fog. I guess I'll just walk by faith, not by sight. See, faith is spiritual sight. Faith is spiritual sight when we, when we don't have physical sight. Faith is spiritual sight that we gain when the spiritual fog begins to lift because we aren't conformed to this world but transformed. Then we can surrender ourselves to God's plans and see the direction he wants us to drive and walk and live through sacrifice and not being conformed. We can get in on God's best. Church, nothing breaks my heart. Perhaps it's because nothing scares me more for myself. Nothing scares me more than me missing out on God's best for my life. I don't want to settle for anything less than God's best for me. It sounds a little bit selfish, but I don't want to miss out. But I have that same love for every one of you. I have that love for my family. I have that love for my wife and kids. But I have that love for you, the body of Christ. I don't want you to miss out on God's best. And as I pray for you as individuals, I pray for you as families, especially as I pray for our teenagers or young people that are going back to school, I don't want them to miss out on what God has for them. But we must sacrifice ourselves for God's purpose. We must saturate ourselves with God's principles. And then we can submit ourselves to the plan God has for our life. Would you bow your heads with me?